Sometimes you have to leave home to find the place that feeds your soul. And I felt the spirit and presence of Monet, which was the biggest factor that made me want to quit everything and move there and work. Coming up, author Elizabeth Murray tells us how a visit to Monet's gardens near Paris transformed her life. For naturalist Gary Ferguson, the journey of self-discovery led west. I happened to see in a magazine at a drugstore when I was about nine photographs, these big, beautiful, full-color photographs of the Rockies, and it just struck me that that's where I, I needed to be, that the stork had dropped me a little bit too far to the east. We'll also tour Ireland's Ring of Kerry, where medieval monks toughed out wild storms and Viking raids on the island of Skellig Michael. Now, it would really be for the intrepid traveler. It wouldn't be for everybody. To get out there is hard to get out there. The conditions can be choppy and rough. Take a journey you won't soon forget in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Whether you enjoy the wild and rugged versions of nature, or if you'd rather smell the roses where the greenery is a little more cultivated, we've got adventures for you coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Guides from Ireland point out the pleasures of the popular tourist drive along the Ring of Kerry, the route may be more than a thousand years old, but it never gets old. And naturalist Gary Ferguson reveals how the North American wilderness gave him solace, even as it taught him difficult lessons about life and death. Let's start with a return visit from Elizabeth Murray. She published Monet's Passion to show the all-season splendor of the gardens at the cottage of the Impressionist painter Claude Monet at Chevernay near Paris. She's here to tell us more about the work that went into restoring the gardens after decades of neglect and how that experience continues to inspire her more than 30 years later. Elizabeth, nice to have you back. My pleasure. Thank you, Rick. Now, you're a professional gardener, and, and you had a business in uh, California, I believe, as you were traveling around Europe uh, 20 or 30 years ago. You were visiting great gardens. You found Gevernay. What was it like for you the first time you came to Gevernay as a gardener? I literally got a lump in my throat. I fell in love with it. It was charming. The scale is not very big. It's very personal. And I felt the spirit and presence of Monet, which was the biggest factor that made me want to quit everything and move there and work. So you did that? You actually sold things? You ended your business and moved to France? Yes. Oh. Yeah. First, I had to meet the curators and ask permission and get the position, and then find a school in Paris to learn French. And I packed up my house in Carmel, California, and said goodbye to my nine employees and moved over. Did you negotiate for some kind of pay? <laughs> no, I couldn't be paid. But it was fortunate that the Vanderkamps made me an apartment, and they also arranged for a small stipend for food. So in my enthusiasm, I was willing to even try to do that. Wow. So that was great. I was appreciative of that. Now, who were the Vanderkamps? Gerald Vanderkamp was the one who was asked. He and his wife had restored Versailles, the great uh, oh, okay. chateau. And then they were asked, would you mind doing this small project over in Giverny, helping restore that? So they were able to raise the first million dollars for the seed money to start the restoration. And really took over. And then Monet's garden became so famous and so loved and 
one of the greatest tourist attractions of France now. Now, they, it was in disrepair, but apparently they had black and white photos, and you could use those as a guide. And to what degree did you actually use Monet's paintings as a guide to restore the garden that inspired those very paintings? Well, big. Um, the paintings, you could see, like from the irises, the painting of irises, you could see the different color lavenders, and hmm. you could look closely and see the falls, the bottom of the iris or the top of it. Or you could look at the water lilies and the combination of colors or his proportions for the Grand Allee. And, and a lot of the structures, the metalwork uh, that all his roses were growing on and the pathways, a lot of the things were still there. And some of the old, old plants were still there. They just needed to be okay. well taken care of and some of the old trees and, and so on. The bones, the bones were there. I like that you say, because one thing you say in in your book, I just love paging through your book because you've got beautiful photography combined with great captions, and you show the garden in the winter. A lot of people Mm. wouldn't think of going to the garden in the winter, but you say the winter is the best time to study the garden's bones. Yes. Well, the garden is closed to the public in the winter. It closes October 30th and reopens April 1st. But I went over there in the winter so I could do measurements and really make the plan that you see in the in the book. For you as a gardener and a photographer and, and somebody who is just passionate about sharing the, the horticultural wizardry, as you put it, of Monet the gardener, it's beautiful to look at the photographs and then understand uh, the artistic magic behind it all. I mean, uh, you wrote in the late afternoon autumn light as the vaporous mist envelops the Grand Dali, the backlit mm-hmm. nasturtiums resemble illuminated stained glass. You're like a tour guide here to appreciate a garden <laughs> and uh, the Grand mm-hmm. Allee would be the main path right down the middle of the garden, right? And then mm-hmm. you look at yes. it at a different time and you've got backlit, like organic stained glass. This is just so evocative to me. Now, we all know Monet's a, a great painter. Describe Monet, the great gardener. It was like a laboratory for color and light. And he could make combinations of plants, like plant bulbs, and he'd know when they would come up a certain color tulip. And then he could plant an annual on top. Let's say it hmm. was yellow tulips and then put blue forget-me-nots on top and then you'd have this his favorite color combination and hmm. he could play with what would be backlit or arches that so he would actually be fun thought to paint. about all of that stuff huh of course oh, oh yeah of oh, course that is amazing i think i read in your book uh, he said something like uh, everything that dies is resurrected here so it's sort of a, there's a cycle going on and he was caught up in that yes all gardeners are absolutely Moni wrote, I perhaps owe becoming a painter to flowers. Did that resonate with you? Absolutely. Flowers are this incredible gift of beauty. And when you have a relationship with them that you've grown them yourself, Mm. they have a vibrancy that really kind of sings to you. And then that inspires you to paint. He he sort of put down the palette of the painter. He, He said the poor palette of the painter could not fully capture the colors of the flowers. Monet must have been a keen observer of nature. I mean, imagine the advantage an artist has when they really, really connect with the natural beauty of nature uh, that he finds in a garden. Absolutely. And so here, I mean, for years he did the outside world, but then he did his organized nature with his favorite colors and some of the elements like reflections in the pond that he so wanted to paint. Mm. And then these layers, the water lilies that floated on the surface that interrupted the sky. So he was the first painter in Western art to paint without a horizon line. Mm. So it was the beginning of abstract painting Mm. to have these huge canvases 
that were floating flowers amongst the sky with inverted grasses and inverted willow trees, completely different. And then he had the vision to create rooms that you could be transported in those rooms and have a whole installation kind of experience. It was very innovative. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Elizabeth Murray, and her book is Monet's Passion. And if you're a gardener and if you appreciate Impressionist art, what a beautiful thing to put together. And back in 1984, Elizabeth was traveling around, and she went to Givernay for her first time, fell in love. A lot of people go to France and fall in love. Elizabeth fell in love with a garden, and she actually changed her life, moved to France, and donated her time, spent a year working on the garden, the Great Restoration. Elizabeth, you're, you're back uh, into this professional gardening world For those of us who are gardeners at home, who never thought about being artists as well as gardeners, what's some advice on how we can take that horticultural wizardry of Monet and be inspired to employ it right in our backyards? I would say play with color and observe your light. And what are the colors you love? And what is the seasons in your garden, in your part of the world? And in the back of my book, I have all these garden plans with overlays Mm -hmm. and different seasons that Mm -hmm. someone can learn how to plant with different depths like Monet did and arches and structures that you grow plants up and not to think on a flat surface, but having blooming trees or fruit trees or roses on columns that go up into the sky and then flat on the ground. You could have bulbs with annuals on top with roses on top of that and think about the seasonality and things changing. Those are some elements that one could consider. I love this whole concept that if gardening is an art, then the flowers and the plants are the paint, and the soil Mm -hmm. and the sky is the canvas. And I know Monet used the sky as well as the soil and the reflections of, of both on the water as his canvas. He was a genius in that. When you said about observation, all of us can have a transformative experience, and I think it's rather spiritual experience, really looking at your garden. And if you don't have a garden, at your park or at some trees or some place that you can walk, a botanical garden. A garden is a personal place that you organize with natural elements that becomes your sanctuary. And in Monet's case, it was also his expression of his art and what inspired him to do his paintings. And Monet was very into his water garden, and that lets mm-hmm. you manage reflections and, and uh, more light, and his weeping willows and his Japanese arched bridge. I'm sure if you're a gardener, it's an inspiration to go out to Giverney. We should mention Giverney is halfway between Rouen and Paris. It's about an hour's drive away from Paris, or you can hop on the train and get there in about a little less than an hour. You go to the town of Vernon, V-E-R-N-O-N, And then you can taxi or walk or get a shuttle bus to the garden itself. The garden's only open in season and not in the winter. It cost about $12 or $14 to get in. You got a lot of crowds in the midday, so I suppose you could go early or late. You know, Elizabeth, one thing struck me is the thought that Monet was going blind at the end of his life. And as he was painting a lot of those great paintings that we know and love so well, the water lilies, he was losing his sight. Monet had this incredible drive and vision that he Mm. wanted to make these huge paintings and he called them his bouquet to France. And it was after World War I that he had survived in his little village and everyone had left. And he wanted to continue to make these paintings as a gift so that the common person could feel that tranquility, the beauty of his pond and be transported. 
So he had this very big ambition and uh, gift that he wanted to give, and I think that drove him. God, the bouquet to France, I love that idea. Yes, I love it too. We've been talking with Elizabeth Murray. Her book is Monet's Passion, Ideas, Inspiration, and Insights from the Painter's Gardens. Elizabeth, clearly when you go to Monet's Garden at Chevernay, you know how to appreciate it and have it impact us. What can we do as visitors to get the most out of our visit to Chevernay? I would say try to take your time, bring a little sketchbook, draw something or little watercolors or at least your camera. And if possible, you can spend the night there in Giverny. There's a lot of little homes and bed and breakfasts you could rent. Then you could be there in the evening and the crack of dawn and see the change of light. Breathe it in. I love going to also the Marmaton Museum before you get to Giverny or afterwards. Yeah. And you'll see Monet's late paintings yeah. there. Ah, appreciate the light. Appreciate the garden. Let yourself become an artist. It's okay to be an artist, even if you're not a great artist. Just be a free artist. I, I love in your book, you, you talk about when they go to Giverny, artists ache for an easel. All of us can yes. ache for an easel and then set one up. Elizabeth Murray, thank you so much, and best wishes with your gardening. Thank you. You can listen to Elizabeth Murray's previous visit with us in our show archives at ricksteves.com. Look for program number 395. Gary Ferguson tells how the American wilderness can transform loss into renewal in just a bit. Up next, it's a guided tour around Ireland's scenic Ring of Kerry. We're at 877-333-RICK. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. While there's no shortage of scenic beauty almost anywhere you go in Ireland, there's one route in particular that makes nearly every Irish itinerary. When you're in County Kerry, in the southwest of Ireland, you just gotta take the 100-mile drive around the Ring of Kerry. Even though it's congested with more than its share of tour buses, driving the Ring of Kerry is an experience you'll never forget. To find out what makes this route so popular and what stops you should plan along the way, we're joined by tour guide Stephen McPhillamy. Stephen is a frequent guest on the show and operates a bed and breakfast in nearby Dingle. Also joining us is Peter Byrne, a former Dublin detective who now guides local tours in Ireland. Stephen and Peter, welcome. Thanks a million, Rick. Oh, delighted to be here. So, Peter, what is the big deal about the Ring of Kerry? I can only say, if you've been on the Ring of Kerry, you'll know what the big deal about the Ring of Kerry is. It's absolutely beautiful. I've been very fortunate to travel all over Europe and somewhat in the States, and this compares to anything anybody's ever seen. Specifically what? I mean, it's sure, it's beautiful, but it's, what, what will you find when you spend six hours driving around the peninsula? You'll have had a good day, even in the rain. I know that might sound strange, but every time I drive the Ring of Kerry, the weather's different. It can be beautifully sunny one day, and it looks spectacular. It can be rainy and a little bit misty, and it's just eerie. It's fabulous. It's the change of coastline. How many times would you imagine you've driven around... Oh, in total over yeah. the last, oh my goodness, probably a couple of hundred at this stage. A couple of hundred times. And yeah. I would imagine there's a different atmosphere depending on the weather. Well, I'll put it this way, I'm never disappointed. Mm -hmm. That might sound strange. Now, there has been the occasional time when it's been really miserable and the rain has been coming down, but you still see plenty. You now, still now, get a great now, feel. Now, the big tourist town nearby, which yeah. is the jumping off point for most tourist mm. buses and so on, would be Killarney. Killarney. Stephen, yeah. uh, describe Killarney. Why is it such a, a household word? Well, Killarney has been getting visitors since Queen Victoria stayed there back in the late 1800s. So it would have had a train connection and 
it had the infrastructure long before the rest of rural Ireland, so it expanded and developed very early. But Killarney is set beside an area of outstanding natural beauty. You know, there's a national park there. Even apart from the Ring of Kerry, huh? Just the area around yeah, Killarney. Yeah, the lakes there and the mountains. And then that, that all sort of dovetails into the Ring of Kerry, you know. So you're starting off in Killarney. It's a busy spot. And there's a, there's a famous rural mansion where Victoria actually stayed, isn't there? That's right, nearby this Muckross house. So that would be considered as part of the Ring of Kerry as well. Right. Like you're, you're leaving from Killarney and you're heading out and... Ideally, we prefer visitors to do the Ring of Kerry in an anti-clockwise formation. For the coaches, yeah. Counterclockwise. Yeah. Counterclockwise. We say anti-clockwise. We say anti-clockwise. So that you'll be going with the with, tour bus traffic? With the flow of traffic and, and also then... Otherwise, you're going to be squeezing by tour buses the, all along. There's a few roads where it gets a bit narrow and you can have a standoff with a big German coach driver. It just can make them a bit irate and the Irish drivers don't like to have a rent-a-car coming towards them and it's just better to go So, Peter, when you go around the Ring of Kerry, you've done it so many times, yeah. you, you go counterclockwise. We go counterclockwise and it's actually, for coaches, it's the law. The law? It's the law. They're supposed to. Now, you do get a few... Well, I would imagine with so many tour buses mm. going around, it would be impossible if they're coming from both directions. So you have a convoy leaving in the morning well, from Killarney, basically. There's, there's an explanation to this as well. A lot of people who come to Ireland realise that our roads are very small. In right. these rural areas, right. and they are. But I'd just like to counter that by saying that if you think very hard about it, the roads, if you dug down these roads far enough, you'd come across the original foot tracks and car tracks that go back maybe 5,000 years. That's so a beautiful thought. keep it with us. We didn't have a new country like America where everything's in a grid system. We didn't have dynamite. We didn't have these things, so we went around rocks and near cliff edges. Uh-huh. The Ring of Kerry is the best I've ever seen. The change is now, when I was going there as a child with my family, two cars couldn't pass. Nowadays, no, two cars can just about pass, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, Peter, if, you, if you're going around, what are the top, let's say, five stops you would make? Larry well, Dowd, what's your itinerary? A lot of people, Mall's Gap is the biggest gap between the two of them, and it brings you very close to Carantool, which is the tallest mountain in Ireland. Mm-hmm. We more or less describe our mountains as the top of the Alps. We don't bother with the bottom. We just keep the top 3,000 feet. So we're very economical. We don't have these monsters, but it's fabulous. And the Gap of Dunlow. Everybody's heard of the Gap of Dunlow, and if you're there, you can go and... They're like a horse and trap, and they bring you to the gap. After that, I'm shortening this now, it's so beautiful, mm-hmm. but then you would have Kilorglan, which is very famous for, if anybody wants to research, Puck Fair. Puck it, Fair. Puck Fair. And every year, for four days, they go out and they catch a wild goat, a puck goat, and they put him on a pedestal about 60 feet in the air, and he stays there, and he's the king. And it's three days involved, arriving day, selling day, and leaving day. And this is where one of the traditionally going back centuries, the people would come from all around with their goods. They'd arrive, they'd sell, and they'd go home. And it has a uniqueness that it's the only place in Ireland, and the only time it happens, is they've 24-hour opening for the pubs for those three days. Because this is what used to be the biggest celebration of And all. that must go back generations and oh, generations. Oh, I... To be honest with you, there's a lot of questions as to how far back it went. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, I would imagine this goes back to the times when people were coming in wheelbarrows. A, a of course, commercial, commercialism jumps on it now. Stephen McPhillamy, we heard uh, Peter talk about the main stops around the island. What stops would stick out in your mind as a tour guide around the peninsula? For me, the Ring of Kerry is a lovely mix of, you know, these lush green landscapes and coastal drives, but it's also full of these lovely, colourful villages. You know, you can stop your car, stop your bus, get out, go for a nice cup of tea or mm-hmm. have a sandwich or bowl of soup, whatever. And they're all full of colour. 
there's bright greens and pinks and yellows and we have a competition in Ireland, a very cutthroat competition called the Tidy Towns Contest and quite a lot of the national winners are on the ring of Kerry. Uh, you have Killarney and you have Ken Mayer. I would imagine Cahar Savine and Waterville's name would have been big contenders as well. So there's Tidy all, Towns. You, you have a multitude of small villages and towns to stop in and enjoy. You know, one would be ample for most people, but you, you could do all five or six really these so there's villages. a lot of cuteness with the, the villages, and there's also a lot of dramatic scenery. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Ring of Kerry, and we're joined by Stephen McPhillamy and Peter Byrne, two Irish tour guides. Now, there's also a lot of amazing history. You've got ring forts. Uh, Peter, describe the, the various ring forts you would well, say. What are these? You've two types of ring forts in Ireland. You've got earthen ring forts, and you've got stone ring forts. The earthen ring forts are more inland. The ones on the west are stone because the ground is so stony. And if you're travelling around the Ring of Kerry, you'll notice there are a lot of stone-covered hills and sides and mountains. And visually, these things are mind-blowing. Well, the best way to describe them is I always try to explain it, that if you stood in the middle of your yard and walked 60 paces in any direction, that would probably give you roughly the size of each of these ring forts. So these are stone, kind of a boonsboro or a stockade, but made out of stone, and it's 2,000 years old, and they're stacked stones, beautifully stacked with no mortar. No mortar, and there's, there's stairways up through them. But they also have these storage areas that they would keep their goods in. Mostly it's for protection, but the likelihood of needing it for that pure protection would be rare, because at the times these were built, the population would be pushing to get over 100,000. You're talking about... So maybe is there a ritual value for these things, or a, uh, a, a the, commercial value, or just defensive? I suppose, really and truly, you're trying to clear land around you anyway. Right. If you're growing crops. That's kind of what the, the stone yeah. walls all over Ireland are, is cleaning the exactly. stones out of the stony soil so you exactly. can harvest. Stephen McPhillamy, when you are in the Ring of Kerry, you'd be tempted to take it one step further and go to that dramatic ancient monastic settlement on a rock out in the middle of the Atlantic. Skellig Michael yeah. is probably the most remote monastery in ancient Christendom. You know, it was way out there at a time when we thought the end of the world was just there. You know, your ships would fall off the end. We did. We thought the world was flat. And the Vikings tortured the poor old monks who were out there. These guys went out there and were ultra strict Christian monks. And despite the conditions, they forced themselves to live in. Then, of course, the Vikings would come and attack them as well. This year, the Skellig Michael, which is a World Heritage Site by UNESCO, by the way, one of our only three sites in Ireland, hosted the uh, latest Star Wars movie. Hollywood has now come to Skellig Michael. So a thousand years ago, Vikings, and now the Jedi. Yeah, it was closed off for a few days for filming, and the Irish Navy were guarding the perimeter of the islands while the filming was going on, and I could see it from my house in Dingle, which is on the next peninsula up. At night, the sky would erupt into reds and oranges and whatever was going on. I don't know, because the movie hasn't been out yet, but there was all sorts of intergalactic battles happening. Intergalactic battles. On Skellig Michael. And on Skellig Michael, it's like a a stone pyramid, basically. It it feels like it's about as big as the Pyramid at Giza, and it's got these monastic communities on it. Yeah. Stony little primitive beehive huts. Beehive huts, exactly. Now, it would really be for the intrepid traveler. It wouldn't be for everybody. To get out there is hard to get out there. The conditions can be choppy and rough. And when you're out there, the underfoot conditions can be hard. So, mm. you know, if you're just going out there for a quick selfie with a beehive hut, don't do it. But if you're a lover of Irish history, get out to Skellig, Michael. You need to be fit. 
You need to be no fit. question about it. Well, you need to be fit a thousand years ago to live there as a monk. Consider well, that no water. They just what do they collect rainwater and well, eat, they did, but eggs? they had a, a very strange diet. They used to eat puffins uh-huh. and seagull and seals, and they used to trade with the mainland when they could. Imagine visiting you know, that a thousand years well, ago when when there was almost no more literate life in Europe, and these guys were keeping the flame well, of literacy alive. in The Europe. strange thing about that, well, they were as he said, they were like um, they were almost like what we would consider these silent orders or something. They were very strict. But they cut every stone out by hand all the way up this. It's a remarkable. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about the Ring of Kerry and a side trip out to a rock in the Atlantic from there called Skellig Michael. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Rhonda's calling from Bedford in New Hampshire. Rhonda, thanks for your call. Thanks, Rick. It's great to be on. My husband and I traveled to Ireland and spent 10 days. And we jumped in a car on day seven and headed southeast to Kinsale, but then over to Kenmare for two nights. And I wanted to say that the Kenmare stop was a great place to, to be for a couple nights because on day one, while we were there, we were able to head north to Kalani National Park and really experience not only Mucklow's House and Gardens, but also um, we saw Torque waterfalls and the ruins of Ross Castle and really the beauty that Kalani National Park was without being sort of up into Killarney, the town itself. And that was just a spectacular day, because then we came back down into Kenmare, which is just this quaint village with great restaurants and just enjoyed the quiet that was there. Uh, and then we're able to, on day two, take off and, and really um, venture right on to the Ring of Kerry from Kenmare. We did end up going clockwise around, because we were all headed over to Dingle, Peninsula afterward, but found that we kind of watched, you know, if you if you kind of plan your day, you'll miss the tour buses. And I would say that October is a great time to go because there's just not the volume. Rhonda, you sound you sound like a great traveler, Rhonda, because you used your guidebook. You knew how to avoid the traffic jam caused by the buses by leaving at a certain time, as any good guidebook would recommend. And you chose to stay in Kenmare instead of Killarney, and then you did a swing around the Ring of Kerry on the way to Dingle Peninsula, which makes a lot of sense if you're touring around. I'd like to get your take on Kenmare, the town, and also talk to Stephen and Peter about this, because that's the big decision. Killarney's the most famous, and it's, I think, quite touristy. Kenmare is a smaller town. Stephen and, and Peter, which would you recommend for a home base? Well, the thing about it is that you're coming to experience Ireland as a whole. And to be perfectly honest, Killarney is like mini USA at times. And that's not a disrespectful comment. I mean, it's just magnificent to hear all the voices. But a lot of American tours and tourists end up there. Kenmare, on the other hand, is as beautiful, but it's a genuine working town. It's a genuine taste of Ireland. It's real people living in real places. Killarney is is main industry is tourism. It's mass tourism. It is, but it's done very well. Nobody's mm-hmm. trying to take you down. It's terrific. Mm-hmm. It's one of the best places in the world that way. Mm-hmm. But Kenmare is so quaint and it's lovely and it's a stroll around. There's great restaurants. Yeah, that's very, yeah it's very manageable as well. The stroll around yeah. point is important because you can just, there's pretty much three or four streets to yeah. it. And there's a great stone circle in the middle of town. Did you get a chance to see the stone circle when you were there? Yes, we did. It was, it was fabulous. And you're right, the strolling, it was so easy to get from our hotel. We walked straight down into the middle and restaurants, everything. Yeah, the, and great, the bars great, were all exactly, there. Yeah, great pub scene, fantastic restaurant yeah. scene. And as with everywhere in the Ring of Kerry, great friendly locals too with some wonderful characters to be acquainted with there. Great music as well. Rhonda, thanks for your call. Well, thank you very much, Rick, for having me on. Okay, bye now. 
Krista's calling from Layton, Utah. Krista, thanks for your call. Hey, thanks for having me on. So we did the Ring of Kerry in April, first couple of weeks of April, and it was gorgeous. I think we lucked out. Fabulous weather. But one of our biggest regrets was it wasn't nice enough to go out to Skellig Michael. When is the best time to go out there? When is the best time where the waters will be calm enough to go? You would hope the summer. I would say, you know, that's obviously the best time. Winter would be probably a big no-no. But it's sometimes just so unpredictable. You know, you could take a chance. It's but 12 miles out. It's a long way out to sea, yeah. you know. It's but I would say June, July, August would be your yeah. nicest time, and hopefully you'd catch the puffins there then as well. Extra bonus. Maybe try even, if you can look online, at when's the best time for whale watching as well in the area? You might get a, an extra treat when you're on your way out to see some whales migrating. It's spectacular when the sun... Did you got the sun when you were there? Yes, we had the sun. Is that not unreal? And the other nice thing was we did have one day when we were there where it was foggy, and I did love the, it looked so mysterious with the stone forts with the mm. fog and the light rain. So it's really, you can't lose out except for going to Skellig Michael. Whether it's rainy, you get a great experience. Thanks for your call, Krista. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. I know. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we've been talking about the Ring of Kerry on the southwest tip of Ireland with Stephen McPhillamy and Peter Byrne. And we've also been getting some great calls from our traveling listeners and listening to everybody talk. It's just, there's so many evocative and, and memorable moments waiting for you in a place like the Ring of Kerry. Peter and Stephen, let's just close with, if you were taking a guest to the Ring of Kerry, what's one moment that would be a sparkling memory for, for many years after? Peter? Well, given the way we hope and you aspire to walk and get out a little bit, I would say the Coolmachista Pass. It's almost halfway around the Ring of Kerry and you have to climb to the top. It's not a difficult climb, you can do it slow or quick, but when you get up there, you see the Burra Peninsula down to your left, which is the Cork end of it, and all the coastline. It's spectacular, all round where you would eventually end up going to Kinmare. Mm. And on the right, just below you, there's a stone ring fort. Mm. And you can see the settlements from there that were originally built around that stone ring fort. It's amazing. There's famine houses down there covered with greenery. It's astonishing. And then you look across to Waterville and you see the opulence of Waterville Golf Club and you see the changes between when life was hard and when life was good. Cool Maquista Pass. What a, yeah. what a dramatic overview and aerial of all that with all that history and all that natural wonder. Stephen McPhillamy, what moment would you be sure your guest would enjoy on the Ring of Kerry? For me, the highlight of the Ring of Kerry is the Black Valley. And the Black Valley was the last place in Ireland to get electricity. And you can get no cell phone signal there today. So nobody can call me when I'm there. I don't have to check emails. Nobody can ping me or message me. And I love being up there with the Kassan brothers when they have their sheepdogs rounding up the sheep. And it's just such a simple, wonderful... These are some farm boys that raise sheep. Yeah. And they've got their dogs trained to gather up the sheep. Yeah, and and it's like the perfect stadium for sheepdog rounding or whatever they do because you just have this vista of this big valley and it's just silent, and the dogs are chasing after 50 or 60 sheep, and it's just the perfect theater for that. The Black Valley. Between Killarney and Kenmare. I'll put both of those magical spots on my list. Peter Byrne, Stephen McPhillamy, thanks so much for a better understanding of Ireland's Ring of Kerry. You're very welcome. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Rick. Got a mahogat in the Irish language. Thanks a million. May the road rise to meet you. May the wind be at your May the sun shine down warm upon your land. 
The nature writings of Gary Ferguson have never been so personal or moving as in his latest book called The Carry Home. He joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves. After hiking thousands of miles on wilderness trails all across North America, naturalist Gary Ferguson knows firsthand how wild places like Yellowstone National Park can help your emotional well-being. He relied on the wilderness to help heal the grief that overwhelmed him when his wife of 25 years drowned in a canoe trip they were taking in northern Ontario. Ferguson has now written The Carry Home, Lessons from the American Wilderness, a book to share the lessons he's taken from scattering his wife's ashes in the wild places that they treasured together. Gary Ferguson joins us now to talk about this experience and talk about his book, The Carry Home. Gary, thanks for joining us. A pleasure. Good to be with you, Rick. You've spent your whole life and and career as a writer and teacher celebrating nature. What is one iconic moment that you use to impress upon people that don't get out very much the glory of nature? It's tough to pick one, as uh, as you can imagine, and I'm sure it's difficult for you as well. But my home range is the Epsorca Beartooth Wilderness on the northeast corner of Yellowstone. And to get up on the high tundra plateaus in the Beartooth Mountains, uh, the northeast portion of that, which is the largest generally intact ecosystem in the temperate world, and to have the uh, possibility of running across wolves and grizzly bears and mountain goats and sheep, and then to see the, the entire world tumbling away in every direction. It's just uh, a staggeringly beautiful uh, place, and I have never gone there, and I've been there probably over a hundred times without feeling my my life renewed by it. You know, that's such a beautiful thought and a beautiful spot. Do you feel almost evangelical about sharing it? Well, yes, and that's a danger, I think, for for nature writing, to, to not be necessarily evangelical. And it's a challenge as well, I think, Rick, because fewer and fewer people, sadly, compared to 25 or 30 years ago, have been able to perhaps take the time or get to those places in the way that uh, they used to. Perhaps when I was in my 20s or 30s, it seemed more common. So there's a bit of a, a gulf between those of us who are experiencing it and talking about it or writing about it, and those who uh, may have just been sort of stuck in the city and can try to imagine it, but, but haven't actually had the experience. Nowadays, people are connected even when they're hiking. Do you see a, like almost a, a challenge for the younger generation to connect with nature? I do, and and that bit of connectivity you mentioned is is really problematic because one of the things I think, well, travel of any kind, to be honest with you, but since we're talking about travel and nature, I'll I'll focus on that. It tends to create a sort of present moment awareness that opens us up in a way that indigenous people would have referred to as sacred time and sacred place. Mm. Uh, the thoughts we have tend to be, I think, perhaps more profound. We we tend to take away a sense of belonging in the world from that sort of present moment awareness. And the more we're connected and multitasking in wild places, I think that the bigger the wall is from us getting in touch with that sort of present moment awareness. You go to the great museums in Europe and they're talking about prohibiting people from having their mobile devices with them because they they don't even see the art. Well, you know, I'm reminded of an experience I had in the late 80s. I was asked to do a collection of nature myths from all over the planet about how different things in nature came to be. And I probably went through 1,500 or 1,600 stories. And it occurred to me, oh, probably after several hundred, that the storytellers across and around the world were really emphasizing three qualities that they thought 
were essential to live well as humans in the world. And the first was beauty, a very present-minded relationship with beauty, to not have a lot of chatter, distraction going on, simply open yourself up and let beauty flow through you and nudge you, as they often said, where you need to go. Mm -hmm. The second was community, a sense of not only our human relations, but also being in, in place on the earth and in space. And the third was a mystery. I mean, even Einstein said that mystery was the source of all science and all art. And travel, to me, of any kind, is an opportunity to be in touch with those three qualities. And certainly when I go to nature, it's mm. a chance to be in touch with those three qualities. So there again, I think if we're too busy and too distracted and too focused on our communication devices, we shut the door on those, mm. those essential qualities that people have been talking about for thousands of years. Gary, this is nothing new for you. Uh, you wrote in your book how you told your parents at age nine, and you were living in northern Indiana at the time, that you were going to live in the Rockies. Well, how do you explain this early love of nature? Some people have it, some people don't. I remember feeling like I was living in a place, although I wouldn't have used this language at the time, that was somewhat topographically challenged, shall we say, in northern Indiana, the, the corn and the rust. And I happened to see in a magazine at a drugstore when I was about nine uh, photographs, these big, beautiful, full-color photographs of the mm. Rockies, and it just struck me that that's where I, I needed to be, that the stork had dropped me a little mm. bit too far to the east. I also, as my high school years came on, I had some struggles and some doubts, as teens often do, about the world and about myself, and I found nature to be extremely comforting in that period, where I could go and feel like I was part of something, but that something was not judging me. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Gary Ferguson. Gary's a noted author of some two dozen titles on science and nature, including Hawk's Rest and the Yellowstone Wolves. His latest book is an intimate account of how the wilderness eventually brought him solace after the tragic canoeing accident that took his wife in 2005. Gary's book is called The Carry Home. It's published by Counterpoint Press. His website is wildwords.net. Well, Gary, you've got such a, a close and intimate relationship with nature, and you've written many books on nature uh, before your latest book, The Carry Home, Lessons from the American Wilderness. Tell us how this book is different. Tell us about your wife. In May of 2005, my first wife, Jane, and I, and we had been married just shy of 25 years and were constant wilderness companions for each other. We had been up on holiday, if you will, in northern Ontario doing some canoeing, some whitewater canoeing. We were pretty experienced at that particular sport. And we stopped uh, on a rainy day to do what was supposed to be the equivalent of a couple-hour walk in the park on a river called the Kopka River. And unfortunately, there had been an ice storm in the area not long before, and trees had fallen down. And so at a portage place, and a portage place is where you get out and carry your canoe around something that's unrunnable. In this case, it was a Class 5 Furious Rapid. Uh, had been moved because of this ice storm closer to the head of the rapid. And there had been some historically high rains the week before that created strange hydraulics. And long story short, we got swept into that Furious Rapid. Mm. We were uh, tipped over about 100 yards into the 300-yard stretch of white water. Uh, we were immediately separated. I ended up getting caught in a recirculation pool a couple times, which is a pool that has a backwash that holds you under the water, and I really thought that was going to be it for me. I was finally coughed out over a six-foot waterfall. My leg went into a rock crevice and broke in several places, and then I was finally washed out into a flush pond. 
I waited for Jane for a while. She didn't show up, and so I crawled several miles out to get help, and uh, her body was found three days later in the Kafka River in that whitewater. Now, curiously, to me at least, several days before this tragic accident, she turned to me out of the blue, and this was not a conversation we'd had in over a decade, said, now you know if something ever happens to me where I want my ashes scattered in these five wilderness places, and I thought it very strange to bring that up out of nowhere, and I ticked off those five places, and uh, a few days later she was gone. And in many ways that request that she made to have her ashes scattered in those wild places was significant in my moving through this terribly difficult period in starting from a dark, hopeless hole and ending up years later because of these wilderness areas and because of her request. I would say in a life that's more patient, more compassionate, more generative, and I'm more able to, I think, be in the present moment than I've ever been before. So it really turned out to be a, a precious gift uh, that she gave me by that request. Now, she had five places in mind, and you write so beautifully about uh, these places and and how you stopped after visiting three places and scattering her ashes. Tell us, first of all, what were the five places and, and briefly why they're special, why you stopped after three, and what it was like to take your partner of 25 years who together you had communed with nature all these times, thousands of miles together. What was it like to be alone and to heed her wishes? The five places included the outskirts of Capitol Reef National Park in that enchantingly beautiful canyon country of southern Utah. She had come there on an outward bound course when she was 18 after suffering a a near deadly uh, episode of what was anorexia, although they didn't call it that back in the 70s. It was a very difficult time in her life, and like I say, she almost died from it. And as she was recovering, part of her recovery took her to that wild place where outward bound allowed her to really come into her own sense of empowerment, if you will, and set her course uh, professionally for her life and allowed a a healing that just went on for for Mm -hmm. decades afterward. There was another location at a little cabin we skied into in the uh, southern Absorca range of northwest Wyoming every Thanksgiving for seven years, and that was an important place to her. The third place was a place in Idaho in the Sawtooth Mountains where we were married in 1980. And then the last two places, which did occur, as you suggested, several years after the first scatterings, were achieved by me walking 110 miles from my front door into the heart of the Beartooth Mountains to a place called Becker Lake, which was the fourth scattering. And then the last scattering occurred in the Lamar Valley of Yellowstone National Park, where Mm. she was a, a ranger working at a nature school for children. I say that the first scatterings broke my heart and the last scatterings helped me put it back together again. I view those first three, which I did within a calendar year of her death, as really an opportunity to mourn. The Greeks have this saying about beauty where it was translated into to be of one's hour. And I think it's very difficult to be of one's hour when you're in a place just racked with sadness and grief and you would want to be anywhere else you possibly could. But those journeys did keep me present. They kept me of the hour of grief, as odd as that may sound. The waiting three years was a, I intended that, and I think it was a good choice, so that when I scattered in the last two places, it was a celebration of her life, it was a celebration of my life, and it was a celebration of the uh, the power of wildness in the culture as well as in our lives as a couple. So I intentionally waited until I had enough distance, I guess you could say, from 
that tragedy so that I could really look at the landscape from a high perspective and, and see the world again as a beautiful place. I love that notion that the best way to control nature is to obey her. In this sense, you were obeying the natural tempo of grief, weren't you? Three of the scatterings were, were sad and grief-stricken, and then you knew that over time you would be able to finish Jane's wishes in a celebratory way. Well, you know, and one of the reasons I knew that as well is from having taught classes for some time on the, the hero's journey motif, often for writers, but uh, for other people as well. And the tragic transformation, the tragic hero's journey, where something has been lost, begins with a sense that you no longer have an identity. It's a loss of mm -hmm. identity, and it's very terrifying. And I would say that uh, that's exactly how it felt in the, mm -hmm. in the early months after Jane's death. The second phase is kind of a wandering phase, where you're not sure which way is up, mm -hmm. down, whether you should go right, left. You make a lot of choices and end up on dead-end roads. And that's a, that's a stage where I think in America in particular, we're, we have a very hard time handling it. People think that three months or six months or nine months after a tragic loss, you ought to be able to sort of get on the horse again and ride. That wandering phase uh, really takes as much time as it takes. Mm -hmm. And then eventually the wheel spins and there's a glimpse of a new identity and an encouraging of that identity. And finally, the wheel turns completely and you find yourself with a new sense of personhood and you take that personhood and that wisdom you've gained on the journey and share it with the larger culture. And that's the, the hero's journey motif. And so by knowing that, as dismal as the experience was at times, I did have a sense that the wheel would turn. I just, I didn't know when, but I knew it would. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Gary Ferguson and um, an amazing journey he took as a nature lover um, after a tragedy and, and how he healed. And his book tells the story. It's called The Carry Home, Lessons from the American Wilderness. Your relationship with nature after the tragic death of your wife, has it changed? Did, did nature become the enemy or is it the healer? Were you angry? Uh, is canoeing haunted now for you or just as enjoyable? Yes, it's a, a wonderful question. I, and I have to admit, Rick, for about three months, 10 to 12 weeks after Jane died, I did feel a sense of betrayal from nature, as, as odd as that might sound, even though we knew very well the risks of, of the natural world. Jane was an outward bound instructor, a search and rescue coordinator, and we had been out in the wilds enough to know that it was not without its risk. There was nonetheless a feeling that after all the years and decades of us having been nourished by it, it was suddenly the stage of, of Jane's death. This may sound overly simplistic, but in fact, uh, in early fall, after the uh, time of her death, I was sitting on a creek that runs behind my house in Montana, and I looked across the uh, stream and saw an old cottonwood that was starting to die, and it just sort of reminded me, and this is a lesson that anyone who spends any time in the natural world knows, that life and death are on a continuum, and that life wouldn't even exist in the first place if it didn't also pass away. And there was some sort of odd comfort in that to the point where I never felt like I was betrayed by nature again. That was not mm. a concern. Because of the gift Jane gave me by scattering her ashes, because of those three qualities I keep mentioning, beauty, community, and mystery, because of the present moment awareness that nature had always allowed for me and certainly did on these journeys, I was able to ultimately, I guess you could say, put the burden of, of that loss down. Do I still miss Jane? Yes. Is she always going to be a part of my life? Absolutely. But it left me on the other side feeling a greater sense of compassion, 
a greater sensibility for those three qualities when I do go out into the natural world. And I would also say an increased motivation to share with people the value of having these wild places or even open spaces in urban areas, for that matter, Mm -hmm. in our lives so that we can all uh, not just take refuge, but prompt ourselves through these difficult periods in our lives by cultivating relationships to the natural world. Thank you for bringing this conversation around to the practical value of having these wild places for us to be close to our souls and close to nature. We've been talking with Gary Ferguson, and Gary's book is The Carry Home, Lessons from the American Wilderness. Gary, let's just finish with this beautiful moment you described just hours before your wife Jane's death. You you described it was the last peaceful moment you had with her in nature. What happened? We were on a system of lakes broken by streams, and it was along one of those streams where that stretch of white water uh, happened to be that I mentioned earlier where she actually would be killed. But on a lake above that stream, and this happened literally minutes before we found ourselves in that furious water, we were on one of those lakes. The sun was breaking through after a morning of rain. Two loons surfaced right next to the canoe, and loons were an especially wonderful part of the natural world for Jane. She had gone up to the Boundary Waters area when she was in uh, her freshman year of college and worked as an intern up at a lodge there. And loons became a, a great comfort and source of you know beauty and, and community and mystery for her. So two loons surfaced right next to the boat, which was very unusual behavior because loons are quite shy of humans. And she was so thrilled by this event and with the sun coming out from behind the clouds that she laid her paddle down on her lap and she looked up to the sky and she said, thank you, universe. Uh, and these were very nearly the last words Jane said. So as far as having a beautiful stage on which to exit this particular plane of existence, I am far enough away from the event now to look back and say, I'm so happy that that's, uh, that's what her last day looked like. Gary Ferguson, the book is The Carry Home. Thanks, Gary. Thank you, Rick. Mais la vie, c'est pas qui Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for studio help this week to OPB Portland and KUSP Santa Cruz. Special thanks to Rhonda Pelican for graphic support. Rick has recorded walking tours to many of Europe's most popular destinations. You'll find a link to Rick's audio tours in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone helping you prepare for your trip to a foreign country by learning a new language through talking to a native speaker. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks for London, England, Great Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks for this region and beyond, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.